Mark chapter 10, most of you know this, but we're uh, just coming through the Gospel of Mark right now. We've been doing that for several months. And uh, today we land in Mark 10, verse 17 through 31. And before we get started, let's pray. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a freedom and an opportunity just now to sing praises to your name. And now, God, as we, as we look into your powerful word, your living and powerful word, let it do just as you said, God, to cut, Lord, and to, to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. God, by your powerful Holy Spirit, I pray you do an awesome work through your word. Lord, you prayed, sanctify them by your truth, and your word is truth. And I just pray the same, God, that you'd sanctify us by this truth. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so Mark 10, if you just kind of look at it, you're, we're in verse 17 through 31. There's two main sections here. So I want you to see the sections before we get going. Two main sections. So if you just kind of look, look at it here, find verse 17 to 22. And that's a section, that's our first section here, verse 17 to 22. And what you're going to see, and that's going to be on the front side of your sheet that you have, your study guide. And this is going to be the story about the rich young ruler. A man that came very, very close to eternal life, very, very close to Jesus, and yet rejected Him. And did not obtain eternal life. And then verse 23, if you look at it, verse 23 to 31 will be a second section. That's going to be on the back side of your sheet. Verse 23 to 31. And what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to turn to His disciples and the interaction, the encounter that He just had with the rich young ruler, He's going to turn to His disciples He's going to teach them some lessons through that whole situation, okay? Now we're going to see a lot in these, these passages about eternal salvation, about the, our eternal souls, where we land in all of eternity. Uh, we're going to see uh, how it is actually possible to come very close to the truth very close to the truth, and yet reject it and go to hell. We're going to see that in this passage. It's very sobering. Another thing that I want to point out from the front end as we look at this passage, just from, from the front end, there's an overarching lesson that's found in this section of Scripture that deals with riches, money, possessions. It deals with those sort of things. Okay, So I want you to think about this. Why do I say that? It's an overarching lesson to deal, dealing with money and possessions. And here's why I say it. Because if you remember, this, this section of Scripture is sitting right in the middle of what we've called a lot the Great Discipleship Discourse. Okay, From way back in chapter 8, uh, really about uh, the midway through chapter 8, till now, and even to the end of chapter 10, Jesus is turning their worldviews upside down about thing after thing after thing. Okay? He's just turning their worldviews upside down, turning their values upside down. He's hitting different things. You remember he hit... Over in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he hit the Christ, right? They had a bad idea about who the Christ would be. Only a conquering king, they missed the fact that he'd be a humble, suffering servant. Well, he flips that idea upside down in the great discipleship discourse. Okay, And then who Christ's followers would be. He hits that, right? They thought they would just reign with him. They didn't realize they would be humble, lowly, suffering servants. And then at the beginning of this chapter, remember the first 12 verses of chapter 10, he begins to work on them in regards to marriage. Okay? And in fact, all the way to verse 16, he deals with them over stuff about family. The first 12 verses about marriage. You remember the disciples, they said, they heard Jesus' view on marriage, and what did they say? 
man, maybe nobody should get married then. So he was just flipping them upside down. It's was, it was not what they normally thought. He was changing their thinking. And then you get to verse 13 through 16, he does the same thing. Dustin told him this last week with children. They had a bad mindset toward children. They were rebuking people who were bringing their kids to Jesus. And he begins to flip this worldview upside down. And what we're going to find today in our section is in that same pattern of thought, Jesus is going to use the story of the rich young ruler. He's going to use the encounter of the rich young ruler to flip their mindsets upside down about money and possessions. So let's read Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Read it with me, okay? Read along with me here. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may have, that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And this ends the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walks away. Okay? He goes away sad. And now Jesus watches. He turns to His disciples and He begins to teach them a very important lesson. Watch, verse 20-30. Then Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. So this is our passage of Scripture. So we're going to go verse by verse through this. We're going to start in verse 17, okay? So if you think with me back over verse 17 right here, let's read it one more time just to get it right at the front of your brain. Verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt, down, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So it says, as he was going out on the road. Okay? The ESV says it like this. As he was setting out on his journey. What journey is Jesus on right now? Where, where is he at? He's on the road going where? If you remember, he's headed toward Jerusalem. He's been headed toward Jerusalem all the way since back in chapter 9. He's headed toward Jerusalem. He's headed toward the cross. 
When you get to chapter 11, he's going to get into Jerusalem. And you cut and chapter 11 on to the end of Mark is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And he's going to come to Jerusalem, come to the cross to be crucified for our sins. And that's the journey that he's on right here. Now, if you remember, Jesus was just teaching what, it, what Dustin taught last week in verses 13 through 16. Jesus was just teaching these people that children are a picture of how you enter the kingdom of God. That you come helpless. That you come dependent on Him. And this is how you enter the kingdom of God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And this is how you enter the kingdom of God. And immediately He gets up and He heads on His journey toward the cross and He encounters this man who doesn't come to Him like a child. He doesn't come to Him dependent. He doesn't come to Him helpless. That's not how He comes to Jesus in the example of the rich young ruler. Okay, Although it may look like He does in the beginning. As you keep going to that verse, still in verse 17, it says, one came running. So he came running up to Jesus as if to catch him before he left. He knelt down. Think about it. Knelt down before Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? So I want you to think about who is this man? I keep calling him the rich young ruler. That's, that's what many people call him. The reason is here in Mark, we see that he's a rich man. If you read the accounts in Matthew and the accounts in Luke, you see that he's a young man. You see that he's a ruler. So he is the rich Young ruler. And more than that, as far as his, what does he rule? It's more than likely that he's a ruler of a synagogue. So not only is, is he young and rich and prominent, but also he's a religious man. He's a God-fearing man. This is who we're talking about here in the rich young ruler. What are some good things that you see about this man in this verse? What are some good things about him? You see that he came to Jesus. He came to the right person. He came to Jesus. You see, he came with the right attitude. He was eager. It says he was running up to Christ. Can you picture that? A man running up to Christ before he leaves. And he came humble. It says he knelt down before him. Can you picture a man? He comes to the right person to Jesus with the right attitude, eager and humble. And he comes even with the right concern. Because what does he say? What must I do to have, to have eternal life? His concern is life after death. So this is what he's thinking about. He's got, he's got this concern, life after death. What about my eternity? That's what he's thinking about. And he comes to the right person. And he comes with the right attitude. Now, what would you say about this man? Just throw this question in your mind. What would you say about this person if he came to you today? If somebody came to you and they were coming to the right person, that you knew they were coming to Christ, the real Christ, and you knew they came with a humble attitude. Can you see him there bowing down before Christ, bowed in his heart toward Jesus? Can you see that? Running up to him, eager to Christ, with the right concern, concern for his eternity. What would you say about that person that came to the right person with the right attitude, with the right concern? What would you say about him? Would you say, that man is saved? Or would you say, that man is almost saved? What would you do? What if, what if he talked to you? What would you say? Would you walk him through immediately a prayer of salvation? Would you comfort him in his salvation and say, hey, if you got concerns like that, you're probably saved already. Is that what you would do? What would you do with this man? How did Jesus respond? Let's look at the next verse, how Jesus responds to this man. Verse 18 and 19. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So what does Jesus do? 
I want you to see that the first thing that Jesus does is He picks out one of this, this man's words. He just picks a word out of his sentence. The man said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus is going to pick one of his words out and begin to redefine this man's word. And which word does he pick out? Good. This man came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus, Jesus picks out that word and he's going to redefine this word good because at the very heart of this man's problem is he has a bad understanding of what good means. He's using it too flippantly. He's, he's looking at a man, Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you don't even know me. You don't know me that well, and yet you call me good. He looked at, the rich man looked out over the world, and he saw people that are good and people that are bad. A world, an earth full of people that are good and people that are bad. And what does Jesus say to redefine it? He says, nobody's good. Nobody is good, but one, that is God. How do you think that messed with his mind about what goodness means? He said, no one is good. No person is good but God alone. And this is getting right to the heart of this man's problem. He doesn't understand what it means for a man or woman to be good. This lines up with old, Jesus' words line up with Old Testament Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. No such thing as it. It lines up with Psalm 14, verse 3. There is none good, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. So this is lining up with Old Testament Scripture. And the rich man's problem of not understanding what good means is still a massive problem today. Do you see that? Do you see it in our world today? Every religion, every religion throughout the world made up by men is an attempt by men to, to set up a system of do's and don'ts so that you can say, I'm good before God. But it doesn't work. Jesus says there's none good. No, not one. And even in our culture, Bible Belt culture, Bibles in every house almost, and you think about even in this culture, and I talk to people over and over again, and what they're dependent on to have eternal life is their goodness. And so Jesus begins to redefine good for this man. Now, here's what Jesus does. So he re redefines goodness. He says, there's none good. He looks, Jesus looks out over the earth and he realizes there is nobody good. Nobody good but one, and that is God. And then he takes the law and he sets it in front of this man. And you see that right here in verse 19 as Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he quotes to him from the Ten Commandments, the second half of the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments. So Jesus takes the law and sets it in front of him. Now think about this. Why did Jesus set the law in front of this man? Why would he do that? And if you understand the purpose of the law, it'll help you. Okay, I want you to think about some verses with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. If you're writing, that's a good one to write down. Romans 3, 19. It says, this is, this is what it says the law does, okay? The law takes everybody who's under the law and it shuts their mouth. And it brings them guilty before God. Now, should we live by what those words say? For example, what Jesus quoted right here. Don't murder. Don't lie. Absolutely. That we should do that, right? We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't lie. But you start thinking the ultimate purpose of this law, the purpose that the law is given is not to make a man say, oh, good, I'll just keep that and I'll be okay. But instead it's to show him his sin. It's to bring him guilty before God as he looks into the mirror of the law and realizes that he is a sinner. And so Jesus puts the law in front of him. Romans 7.13 Romans 7.13 says the law comes in and makes sin exceedingly sinful. It gets very specific. 
makes sin exceedingly sinful. You say, I'm a sinner in general, and you take that lightly, and you realize the law says, don't lie. Don't lie. And you realize you have told countless amounts of lies in your life. And so should this rich man. Or you see it says don't commit adultery. And Jesus, you know, Jesus said whoever looks at a woman to lust after has already committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus drives it internal and says you're guilty of that. You're breaking that command because you did it on the inside. And so every person here broken it over and over again. And so Jesus takes the law and sets it in front of this person. So how will the rich man respond? You think he'll be broken He'll see the law. He'll look into the mirror of the law and see his sin. And he'll be broken. He'll break down before Jesus knowing that he's a sinner. Let's look at how he responds in verse 20. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. So what happens here is this rich man just divulged what Jesus already knew was there. Self-righteousness. It was already there. He already looked at himself as good. He thought himself to be a good man. Jesus says, none is good. And he gets confronted with the law and he says, all those things I have kept from my youth. He he shows his self-righteousness here. Now, obviously this man does not understand the depth of the law. Maybe he didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Jesus took those laws. He said, I know you've heard it said this. He said, and he drives it internal. He says, lust is equal to adultery. And he goes on and on. Maybe he didn't hear that sermon, but he doesn't understand the depth of the law and he does not understand the depravity of his sin. He says, I've kept these things since my youth. Surely this man has told countless lies and yet he says, I've kept these these things since my youth. Surely this man has been angry at somebody without cause when he knows he shouldn't have been. Just this, this ungodly, sinful anger, he's had it, which God, which Jesus equates to murder. And he says, all these things, all these things, I've just kept them since my youth. His self-righteousness. He's blind to his own sinful depravity and therefore he sees no need for forgiveness. He sees no need for a Savior. And I want to tell you that this deception is everywhere. Do you see this deception in our world? This deception is everywhere. Like I said earlier, every world religion, every religion is a, it's this attempt by men to do what? Set up this system of do's and don'ts so that I look good in the the sight of God. But it doesn't work. There's none good. No, not one. There's none good. And it's rampant in our culture. And maybe there's even some of this in the meeting today. I think about this. Could there be someone here that, that the reality is you're like the rich young ruler and you've depended on your own goodness. When you think about how I might be able to have eternal life, just like the rich young ruler wants. The reality is you've depended on your own goodness. Could that be among us today? It's rampant in this culture. Now, if we look at what the rich young ruler did, he said, he said uh, all these things I've kept from my youth, right? This should make us very thankful, very thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit does? John 16, 8 says, He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit brings about conviction. This is what happens when somebody is genuinely saved. They begin to feel a conviction of the Spirit over their sin. And then because of this conviction, they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit exalts Jesus in front of their eyes. Aren't you thankful for the work of the Spirit of God? Also, I want to sit in this thought for just a minute. God is, this is what we're getting out of this passage. The rich man doesn't see it. But you, you need to see it. 
God is good. Jesus said no one is good but God alone. God is good, but man is not. And this is at the heart of the gospel. God is good and man is not. One, I heard one preacher say it like this. He said he was talking to a, a, a group of students somewhere. And he's talking to these students and he was building them up. He said, I'm going to tell you the most terrifying truth in the, in the, whole, in the whole of Scripture. I'm going to tell you the most terrifying truth truth in all the Bible. And he just sets them up and gets them on the edge of their seat. And then when he's ready for it, he said, God is good. And everybody looked at him kind of crazy. Why is this the most terrifying truth in the Bible? And he says, because man is not. And the only thing that a good God, a good judge can do with sinful man is bring punishment down on him. Is bring justice down on him. God is good. Amen is not. But the rich young ruler did not come to Jesus convicted of his sin or desperate for for forgiveness or for a savior. This is not how he came to Jesus. And so, how does Jesus respond to him? Look at look at verse twenty one. How does Jesus respond to this man? Then Jesus, looking at him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, "One thing you lack." Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. So Jesus looks at him and does what? He loves this man. He loves this man. What an example. What an example for all of us who who want to be uh, in the work of talking to people about their eternal souls. What an example here that he loved this man. The pay, think of the patience of Jesus. This self-righteous man standing before Him, the only one who's good, and He loves this man. Think of the kindness of Jesus that He, that he shows right here. And then He's going to dig deeper into this man. To re- he's going to reveal this man's sin. In love, He's going to dig deeper into this man's heart and expose his sin. He says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. And this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying... Hey, you've done so much worthy of eternal life. Just one more little thing to do. That's not what he's saying. This one thing you lack here has this idea. There's only one requirement. There's one thing and you have not done it. You have not done this one thing. One thing you lack, he says, and he tells them, give all your stuff away and come follow me. He said, it's what he says, Richard, just give it all away. Just give all your stuff, all your possessions, all your riches, all your lands. Just give it away. Just sell it and take the money from it and give it to the poor and come on and come follow me is what Jesus tells him to do. What is Jesus doing here? He's exposing this man's idol. He has an idol. And what is his idol? Riches, possessions, his stuff. He loves his stuff. He has a love of money. He loves his stuff and Jesus exposes it. He says, take all that stuff and you give it all away. Get rid of it and come follow me. He's exposing the man's idols. Jesus was not telling this man to do anything that Christ himself had not already done. What had Christ done? Jesus is the ultimate rich, young ruler, right? 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. He's the ultimate rich young ruler, and Jesus is asking this man to do nothing that he has not already done himself. But this rich young ruler idolizes his stuff. He loves his stuff. He's obsessed with riches, and he's unwilling to part with it. 
He will not part with his riches. Look at verse 22. But he was sad at this word. He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this man, Jesus makes it clear to him, you cannot have your idol and eternal life. You cannot have your idol and me. And he makes it abundantly clear to this man. You either hold on to your idol and you walk away and you go to hell forever, or you drop your idol and you come to me and have eternal life. It says, drop your stuff and come to me. This reminds me of a verse, Matthew 13, 44. If you remember, Matthew 13, 44 describes salvation. And what does it say? It says, the kingdom of, he- kingdom of heaven. It's like treasure that a man found in the field. And he found that treasure and then for joy over this treasure, he goes and sells everything else and he buys that field. He wants that treasure, right? Why is it with joy he could sell everything else and get that field? Why? Because the treasure was worth far more to him than all the stuff that he had. And what happens here with a rich young ruler, it's like he looks the treasure right in the face. Christ Jesus is the treasure. And He looks the treasure right in the face and instead of saying, I'll sell everything else and I want that one, I want Him, I want Christ, He turns away. And He makes a decision to leave. He walks away sad. Because, why? For He had many possessions, it says. He had many possessions. Now, let me, let me just put in front of you a shocking reality, okay? Because I want you to, I want you to think soberly about these things. A shocking reality. Here's a shocking reality. It's very likely that this man that we're reading about, this rich young ruler, is in hell right now as we speak. It's very likely. And it's very likely that he remembers. Luke 16 speaks of a man in hell and it says, Abraham says to him, Son, remember that in your lifetime there's memory in hell. And this man is very likely he's in hell right now and he is tormented by the memory of how close he came to the truth. He's tormented by the memory of of seeing the Savior face to face and yet turning away for far lesser treasures. He's tormented by it. And my prayer is that none of us here in this room and none of us in this church would be like this rich young ruler. That's my prayer. It's a burden to me. I hope it's a burden to you for each other that none of us will be like Him. You see, we can know each other in a a very, very intimate ways, and I pray that that happens more and more with our church, but none of us know each other like the great shepherd knows us. He knows our hearts. He sees deep into our hearts, and He knows when there are people that stand very, very close to the truth. They're close to it for a long time, and they they know the right Jesus, the right person. And, they, and they've got the right concern of eternal life. There's, those kind of things are there. And yet they don't know Him and they turn away and they go to hell forever. So please, examine your life. Examine your heart. Don't be like this rich young ruler. What's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What's it profit a man? You won't give up the world? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. So this rich man comes to Jesus seeking eternal life, but he walks away just as lost as when he came. And in the following verses, we're going to see Jesus take this encounter with a rich young ruler, and he's going to turn it to teach his disciples a great lesson. Look at, look at verse 
23 with me. Verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. You see, His focus is on the disciples now. You see that? He's turned to His disciples. He's looking at them. And He says, how hard. How hard. It is hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's not easy to enter the kingdom of God. Particularly for those who have riches. It is not easy. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And I want to encourage you right there. Don't be disconnected from this warning. Don't be in yourself. Don't be disconnected from this warning. Listen to R.C. Sproul on this. Listen to this quote. We who are in America need to heed our Lord's warning at this point because we are the most prosperous people in the history of the world. Even some classified as poor in America have a better standard of living than some kings from centuries ago. Don't be disconnected. Don't be disconnected from this one. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to let this statement out and then it is going to shock His disciples. It's going to shock them. It's going to shock them to the core. Now, why does this shock the disciples? Because they, they are influenced by the common thought of this day. And the common thought of this day is riches and wealth and health. That equals the favor of God, the acceptance of God. Not unlike our health Wealth, prosperity, gospel that's in our culture today. It's a cancer to Christianity. And this is, it's not a new concept. It's not a new thing. And we see it right here. This is the mindset that this common in their day. And the disciples had that. This man's got riches. He must be favored by God. Riches equals favored, accepted by God. You can see kind of a parenthesis. Let me give you a parenthesis here. Over in Psalm 73, don't flip there, but you can look in Psalm 73 at some point and you can see a man named Asaph that's dealing with the same problem. He's looking at the rich. He knows himself that he wants to obey God. And he's saying, but why am I plagued every day? I'm plagued every day and I'm walking in righteousness. And I look at all these, these, these wicked people and they're walking in riches and health and wealth. And that's what they have. And he's struggling with this problem in Psalm 73. How could it be this way, he says? And then he says, and then I realize their end. I realize their end, that God has them in slippery places. And that for these people, their riches have become their idols, and their feet are on slippery ground, and one day they're going to be dragged down into eternal destruction, and then the light goes off for Asaph. This is not a new struggle, that riches equals the favor of God. And this is the situation with the disciples. So when Jesus says, how hard it is for those how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, it's going to shock them and it's going to obliterate this false teaching that health, wealth, and prosperity equals favor and acceptance from God. So the disciples are left shocked. You can see that in verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at His words. Astonished, amazed. So what's He doing? He's flipping their mindsets upside down about money and possessions. He's flipping their worldview upside down. Let's keep reading there in verse 24. 24 and 25. The disciples were astonished at His words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The ESV, which is probably more accurate here, says, says it like this in that first verse, verse 24. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says it again. That, 
the disciples don't even have a chance to respond. They're just sitting there in shock. They don't say a word to Jesus. And he presses into them again and says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he wraps some imagery around it. And he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So how hard is it? It's impossible. Jesus took, just took the largest animal in Palestine and He took the smallest opening and He said, if you can fit, if you can squeeze a camel, this big animal, into this small little hole, that's, when you can do that is when a rich man can be saved, when he can enter the kingdom of God. He says it is impossible. It's impossible is what he's getting at. Now, some people have tried to soften, soften the blow on this. And they, they've talked about a, a, a gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate that you had to bow down to get into. There's no evidence for that, okay? And I don't know where, where, why people feel the need to use that, but there's no evidence for that. Let's just take God at His Word. He says it's impossible. It's impossible. A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. Can you picture that? It is impossible. He's using what's called an, an idiom. It's like saying a rich man will be saved when pigs fly. Or another, it's like saying this. It's like saying uh, a, a rich man has a snowball's chance in hell to be saved. You ever heard that one? This is what he's using. He's trying to wake them up and say it's like a camel fitting through this little hole. They can't be saved. You can't have it. It's impossible for them to have eternal life. And how will the disciples respond? Look at verse 26. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who, who then can be saved? So they were astonished. Now they're greatly astonished over these words. And they begin to think and they begin to say, so who, who can be saved then? Do you see the confusion in their mind about riches? They're so confused about riches. Do you see it? In other words, if that rich man who has favor from God can't be saved, then who can? And he's flipping that mindset upside down. Who then can be saved? And Jesus is going to respond with one of the best sentences in the Bible to fight against works-based salvation. Okay? Look with me at verse 27. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So you see it, the question is what? Who then can be saved? Saved from what? Who can be saved from eternal damnation? Who can be saved from your sin that drives you into hell? Who can be saved from that? This is the question. Who can be saved from eternal torment? Who? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With men, it is impossible. Every religion in the world trying to make it seem possible. But it ain't possible. Put out your system of do's and don'ts. It will not work. It's impossible for a man to save himself. Impossible. If you ask yourself this, let me ask you this real quick before we move on. Why would it be impossible? What did Jesus already say? There's none what? There's none good. There's no, no one is good but one. And if no one is good, then what are we? We're not neutral. We're not good. We're what? Evil. Romans 7 says wretched. Jeremiah 17 says desperately wicked. 
Psalm 51 says you were brought forth in iniquity. In sin, your mother conceived you. Born into sin. This is the idea you're not good. You can't save yourself, but salvation is impossible for you. According to God's standards, we are all violators of God's law, and therefore we are unable to save ourselves. Unable. Unable to save ourselves. So what if somebody says this? What if somebody says, why? You know, and maybe somebody here, what if you say, well, I just, you know, I don't feel that sinful. You said wretched. I don't feel wretched. You said desperately wicked, but I don't feel that way. What do you do? What, what if you just don't feel that way? Listen to this. It's just a little phrase from the Bible. Listen. Deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you. It'll make you, you'll get comfortable in sin. And you, you can go to hell on a clear conscience. You think about that? This guy just said, what did Richard Ruler say? He, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And had Jesus never spoken another word to him, he would have gone straight into eternal torment thinking that. You see that? Sin can deceive you and it hardens you that you don't even feel the weight of who we really are outside of Jesus. So who then can be saved? And Jesus says with men, it is impossible. Impossible. So just give up, right? Just roll over and die? Just just accept it, right? That we're all sinners and we're on a trajectory to have eternal damnation. Just accept it. Roll over and die, right? No! There's good news! He doesn't stop. He says, with man it is impossible, but, but not with God. It's not, salvation's not impossible with God. With God, all things are possible. It's possible to be saved because of something that God has done. God has made a way. What is that way that He made? Jesus. Jesus came. He came in the flesh. He took on a body. Fully man, fully God. There He is. I can't explain it, but He's fully man and He's fully God. Some people say, well, He can't, he can't God, God can't become a man. What are you saying? God, God's weak? You said He can't become He can do whatever He wants to do. You said God can't do something. He took on flesh. Fully God, fully man on a rescue mission to save us. And then we got this wrath of God abiding over every one of our heads. Sin, wrath of God, punishment of God is right here. And He moves us out of the way and He stands under it. And when He goes to the cross, it's dropped. And He takes all the wrath of God in our place. He died for our sins. And He's buried. And He's risen from the dead as the Savior of all. And this is really good news. Really good news to everybody who drops their idol and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. Really good news. With God, all things are possible. Jesus says. Look at verse 28. How would Peter respond to this? Peter's going to... Peter's, you know, the whole group's hearing it. But Peter's going to speak up. What does he say? Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and follow you. So what, what's happening here? Peter's starting to think on his own salvation, right? He's seen, he's seen what happened to the rich young ruler. Came to Jesus for eternal life. Left, didn't have it. He's heard these shocking words that it's harder for somebody to, to enter the kingdom of God. It, it'd be easier to take a camel and put him through the eye of a needle. He's heard these shocking words, okay? And then he's heard this little glimmer of hope. It's just a little glimmer of hope. 
But not with God, it's not impossible. With God, all things are possible in regards to salvation here. And he hears this little glimmer of hope. And Peter begins to be concerned about his own soul, his own eternal soul. And he's concerned about the eternal souls of those people that are around him. And then he says, he says this. He says, we've left all. We, we did what you told the rich and ruler did. Dude, we, we did that. We left all and followed you. Is what he says to him. If you look at the account in Matthew 19, he adds these words. He says, then therefore, what shall we have? That's what he says to Jesus. What, what shall we have? In other words, he's concerned about his eternity. Peter's brain, his heart is getting kind of wrecked here. What about my eternity? And I want you to look at this loving response from Jesus. I love this loving, sweet words of affirmation response from Jesus in verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, like this is truth. You put it in the bank. Sure, assuredly I say to you, there is no one, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. There's no one. The lesson here is don't let anything keep you from Jesus. Even good things, family, riches, what is it? What stands in your way? Let nothing keep you from Christ. And he says right here, no one who has left all this, there's no one who has left all this for Christ who shall not receive, verse 30, listen to the promise, who shall not receive a hundredfold, a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters, all the stuff you left, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He said this promise, this is the promise to you who have left all, and followed Christ. What a sweet, sweet promise. A hundredfold, he says. Now here's what Jesus could have said. I want you to see this. Jesus could have just said, and he said, what, okay, we've left all, you know, rich man still got all his stuff, all his idols, everything he wants, you know, whatever on this earth. We've left all and followed you, Jesus. Okay? We've left all and followed you. What, what will we have? And Jesus could have just said, you got eternal life. That's what you got. And that would have been enough, Right? That would have been enough to say, well, we're going to keep coming following you then. You know, or, or that would have been enough to say, to begin to worship and praise Him for what He's done. That would have been enough, and yet Jesus takes it a step further. And He makes it very clear to them that not only in eternity and the age to come, but now in this life, a hundredfold of what you gave up, He says, I give to you. I give it to you, He says, a hundredfold. As if, as if to say, the rich man got the short of the stick, not just in eternity, but now. As if to say, you made you you got the good you got the good deal not only in eternity but even now. So here's the idea: Have you left it? Have you left riches and whatever your whatever keeps you from Christ, whatever the idols might be, left riches and possessions and all this stuff? Well, listen to me: In Christ Jesus, there are riches immeasurable, immeasurable to be found in Christ Jesus. Have you had to leave mother? Mother, brothers, sisters, father, if you had to leave family over this sort of thing, listen, in Christ, you've got the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, and you get a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and children. He doesn't leave you out to, out to dry. And I know some of you have experienced that. So in other words, this was a very stupid decision by the rich young ruler. Here's how R.C. Sproul said it. He said, he was like a man who would not trade a wooden nickel for a billion dollars. 
He made a very dumb decision. Very silly. Very silly. Rich young ruler. I don't want to leave this word out. There's a word in verse 30 that says persecutions. You see it? Persecutions. And many of us would think, oh, that's a bad thing, right? That's a, isn't that a curse? But you realize this is in the list of blessings, right? He says, I give you. He said, you leave everything and follow me. I give you a hundredfold now in this life, brothers and sisters and houses and lands. He says, with persecution, this is a blessing. How kind of Jesus how kind of Jesus to not only give us eternal life, but even in this world, give us each other, to give us the church, to give us the body of Christ, and to even give us persecutions as a gift. How kind is Jesus? Now let me get very practical. I'm going to get very, very practical right here. I want to give you two main applications, okay? I know you think I, I, I forgot that last verse, but I didn't. Verse 31, I want to use it in my first application, Okay? But two applications. Application number one is this. A major thrust of this passage, okay, a major thrust, right, do you read this passage? Here's a major uh, thrust you're supposed to feel here, a major thing you're supposed to see, is that Jesus is transforming the views of his disciples about money and possessions, just like he wants to transform our mind about money and possessions. So I want you to see that. This is a big application. He wants to transform, just like he did his disciples, transform our minds about money and possessions. Now, why do I say that? Let me tell you quickly. Why do I say that, okay? You've already heard a little bit from me on this. Number one, I've already said, the context is in that great discipleship discourse. He's, he's flipping their mindsets upside down about everything. And here he's doing it about riches. Also, notice the response he draws out of his disciples. What is the response? Who then can be saved? If rich people can, who then can be saved? He draws this, he draws out the false mindset out of his disciples. And then thirdly, let me say this. He caps off this lesson with verse 31. He caps off the lesson with this. Listen. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, the first are the rich. The first are the have-a-lots. Okay, it's the wealthy, the prominent. And he said many of those who are first. Now praise God, he didn't say all of them. He didn't say all of them. We had examples of rich men in the Bible that were saved. Okay, he didn't say all of them. But he said many of those who are first will be last. And he says and, those, and many who are last. He says, and the last first. The last are the have-nothings. The poor, the humble, the lowly. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's been doing it the whole time. You think the Christ is only going to rule, but the Christ is going to be a humble, suffering servant first. You think you're just going to rule and reign Christ followers, but you're going to be humble, lowly servants. Whoever wants to be great among you, let him first be. He's just flipping mindsets upside down, and he does it right here in regards to riches and money. Now, do you think that this is important for us? Absolutely, right? This is very, very important. This is, this is so serious that we just read a story about the love of money leading a man to eternal torment. That's serious, right? We should take this very serious. Okay, so what I want to do, what I want to do is I want to take a portion of Scripture that I think will press against our common mindsets about riches and possessions and these sort of things. That are very, I just, want to, I just want to read it to you. Okay, my application is to read this verse to you. And I want you to take it serious because you've heard this passage before. This passage I'm about to read to you, you've heard it before, but listen to me. I want you to take it in a very serious manner. In a... In a riches, just let a man, or the love of money, just let a man to hell kind of seriousness. Okay, I want you to be serious about what I'm about to read to you. Flip with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
Jesus wants to flip the mindset upside down about money. Our culture has got it all wrong. 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, walking with God, Christ with contentment, satisfied in God alone and anything else, I'm satisfied in Christ. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You didn't bring anything in and you can't carry anything out. Those riches, the love of money and those riches that that rich young ruler held on to, he does not have them right now. Unless he turned to Christ at some point, he is in hell. And he does not have his riches. What a sad decision he made. Verse 8, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Ooh, that's different than our world, isn't it? And having food and clothing, satisfied in Christ alone. Verse 9, But those who desire to be rich, now this is not just rich people, it's not sinful to have riches. That's not, that's not the point here. But the, you can be poor and desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You want to be drowned in perdition and destruction? He says, desire to be rich. Let this be your desire. Let's just be what, what God makes decisions for you in your life. Verse 10, for the love of money. Not just money itself, but the love of money. What's going on in here? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You want to be pierced through with many sorrows? What about this mindset toward money and possessions? The love of money. The desire of money. And he looks and he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Run away from these things. Flee these things. And instead pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Skip down to verse 17. Command those. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor trust in their uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Take this seriously. I know you've heard this before about the love of money. I encourage you to apply this to your think about this. The Lord wants to rearrange his disciples' mindset. Okay? What about you? Where are you at on this? One more application here. Second and final application. I want to encourage us all to beware. Beware of false conversion. Okay? Let's beware of false conversion. Okay, let's let's not be naive, okay? Don't don't be naive. When there are people gathered together in the name of Christ like this, almost always, almost always, they are those who are like the rich young ruler that have come so close, so close to eternal life. And they know the right answers and they came to the right Christ. And at some point, maybe in the past sometime, they had this thing and they said, I got to figure out something about my eternity. And yet they were unwilling to forsake all and follow him. There's almost always rich young rulers in the crowd. 
But here's the difference. This rich young ruler had a man look at him and love him and speak the truth to him. Jesus looked at him and he exposed his sin. So what he did to him, he exposed his sin. After he exposed his sin, he told him to leave it all and follow me. Come to me. Eternal life found in Christ. In Christ alone. And he had, a, he had a man, Jesus, do that to him. And so he walked away, what? Not happy, but sad. Knowing that he didn't have eternal life. Not if what Jesus' words. Not if what Jesus said was true. But here's the difference. Okay, here's the difference. When there's rich young rulers so often in this culture, in this society, they do that exact same thing, but they don't always have somebody look them in the eye and speak the truth to them and expose idols and show them Christ. They don't always have that. In fact, oftentimes they take people that are rich young rulers and we, and we just lead them and we pat them on the back and tell them that they're already saved or lead them into a prayer of salvation or something like that. Something like that may have happened with you in the past. And here's the problem. You don't walk away. If that happens, if, if you didn't have a, somebody like Christ expose sin and, and show you the truth, if you didn't have that, then what happens is you don't walk away sad, but you walk away what? Happy. Content in being a false. This is what we call so often false conversion. False converts, okay? And I want us to be aware of that. There's a high probability that there could be false converts in, in any kind of group that's like this. And so I just, I just want to take a second just to plead with you not to ignore this. That if, if I pray, okay, we prayed earlier, that the Spirit of God will be pricking people's hearts during this time. Because that's how it works, right? It's not just us. I'm not so eloquent that you guys just love listening to me, right? No, these are the powerful words of God. And as the Word of God is taught, as it's read, the Holy Spirit does something in the hearts of His people. And here's the work of the Holy Spirit. He does something in the heart of even lost people. He convicts them of their sin and He exalts Christ to them. So if you're dealing with this, you're thinking about false conversion, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. And in fact, I, I, Jesus looks at you. He says, he says He loved him. He loved him. And He said, sell it all. Just sell it all and come to Me. And I'm telling you the same. I love you. Okay? I, there's people, if you're here and you're dealing with that, there's people here who love you. We don't want that one of the most tragic things I can imagine is somebody that sits under the teaching of God's word over and over and over and over again. And they hear the truth over and over again. And then they die and they have eternal torment. It's sad. And it's tragic in my mind. So please don't ignore this. Let's take a second to pray. <clears throat> Father, if that's true. If there is anyone here, God, that you're dealing with over their conversion, over their eternal life, I pray, God, that you would continue to deal. I pray, God, that you would destroy the works of the enemy in their life. I pray, God, that you would, you would continue to work on them, God, and allow no distraction to stop them, God. Don't allow the cares of this world to choke out what you're doing in their life. And I pray, God, they turn to you and be saved. Lord, it's so, so kind of you. So kind of you, God, that we just... We just repent and believe on You, Lord, and You, and you save us. And I just pray, God, that, that You would do that here. And God, with Your people here in regards to money and riches and these things, Lord, please protect us, God. Protect us as a church from this snare, from this love of money and desire to be rich. Please protect us as a church from these things. And I pray that You make us a people that are... That are rich in good works and ready to give and willing to share and lay in hold of eternal life. Help us, Lord. 
Thank you for this. Thank you for these words. In Jesus' name, amen.